Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms Podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. Join me today for a conversation with author Matthew Frey all about intentionality in marriage. Matthew has written a thoughtful down-to-earth guide to help partners identify and address relationship-killing behavior patterns in their own lives. Filtered through the lens of his own surprising life-changing experience and his years counseling couples, his new book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, exposes the root problem of so many relationships that go wrong. We simply haven't been taught any of the necessary skills, Matthew explains. He is here to talk about all of this and more on today's episode. But before we get to the conversation, I wanted to encourage you to leave a rating and review if you haven't done so yet. Leaving a rating and review on iTunes is the best way you can continue to help this podcast succeed and grow for others to find it and implement some of these minimalist tips in their own life. So I really appreciate you doing that if you haven't done so yet. As for my minimalist resource this week, it's probably one that most of you are familiar with. It's The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I will say my husband and I have debated the five love languages because he thinks most people are all of these things, which sure, we all are to a point, but I do think there is one that stands out the most and is how we best feel loved. So their quality time, acts of service, physical affection, words of affirmation, and gifts. As a fun fact, gifts are my love language and I didn't know if I could actually be a minimalist and have gifts as my love language. I obviously don't need to be gifted all the time or gifted diamond earrings, but I do like when people get me a coffee or I had a friend recently give me a plant and it was just so thoughtful and it, it, I think a little thought goes a long way when it comes to gifts. So think outside of the box with that one. Anyways, back to why this is my resource this week. This book has played a large role in intentionality in our marriage. We talked about it at the very beginning of our marriage. Now here we are almost 11 years in, and it was just about a month ago that we sat down and made kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So just to give you a quick example of my pyramid, at the bottom there were things like coffee and cookies from one of my favorite cookie places and pumpkins that I love to receive in the fall things like that. And then in the middle were a little bit more extravagant gifts, like a night out at a more fancy restaurant. And then the highest triangle was a night away or a trip, things like that. So you can do that for any of the five love languages. But I will say ever since we took the time to sit down and we did this on date night, it was a fun thing to do on date night. Ever since we've done this, we've really tried to love each other through those pyramids which in turn is how we feel most loved and most supported. And it's been really beneficial to our relationship. So the resource is the book, but my minimalist moment has to do with the intentionality in regards to our relationship by making these pyramids. All right. Well, I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with Matthew. I really enjoyed his book. I always appreciate when someone draws on their own experiences to help communicate what they could have done differently or what they would have done better or just advice that we can take from people's mistakes, I guess, and also their life experience. I love learning from you guys. I love learning from authors. I love learning from my friends. I mean, I honestly think it's one of the best ways that we can better ourselves. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Matthew Frey. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today on the Minimalist Moms podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. As I said, kind of before we got on the call, this is a minimalist podcast and I'm all about intentional living and how we can just make the best choices to have the least amount of stress in our life. And your book, well, it's about divorce, but how good people sometimes are bad at relationships. So um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners and then we'll go ahead and get started. My name is Matthew Frey. I am a relationship coach and author as of March. My new book is called This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. It's um, based on it's based on my own divorce. It's like 20% memoir, not that I have anything interesting to report about my personal life, but I like to leverage the lessons of my own story as a means of talking about relationship habits. And um, I don't know. Some people like it, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I like it a lot. I like how you say good people end up being bad spouses because, I mean, I've had moments in my own marriage. I mean, I feel like we're actually coming out of, not to like spill my guts, but we're coming out of somewhat of a rocky season. And I feel like we finally have found our footing 10 years in. I don't know. I'm all about learning from other people in this life. I mean, if we can just support each other and help each other in that way, I feel like that's why I have this podcast. So I think your book does the same. Yeah. I, um, it's, I guess it's, I don't know if I'm drawn to it because I'm prone to do it Mm -hmm. or if I'm prone to do it because I'm drawn to it, but I like the type of lessons that Mm -hmm. come from, you know, personal experience rather than uh, personally than, than academia. You know what I mean? I'd rather read about the human being in the field doing the work than, like listening to the lecture and the, and the lecture hall. And so anyway, I try to bring that conversationally to this, but we'll see, like, I don't know, everybody's different. No, absolutely. So you say we accidentally damage our relationships via the habits that we create that we don't know are harmful. Can you expand a little bit about this, that maybe what did you see in your own life that was contributing to that? And I'm a believer that, it takes two to tango. We both probably in a marriage bring habits to the table that are not necessarily building up our relationship. So what are some some things that you've seen that have been negative? I mean, the way that I think about what I referred to as the divorce crisis is that there are a lot of really good, well-intentioned people out there. And I know that's like a weird subjective term to say good, because that means so many different things to so many people. But I'm hoping that, you know, the 80-20 rule, that like 80% will like, sort of organically know what I mean. It's just, I don't think people intentionally get married knowing what happens in year five, seven, 10, 15, when we don't tend our gardens very well. And again, it has so little to do with intention. It has so little to do with character. Although undoubtedly those things adversely affect relationships. And I don't mean to exclude them. What I think is a crisis though, is that a bunch of people that are trying really hard, they're doing everything that they believe they understand about what it takes to be in a healthy relationship in order to treat somebody well, in order to treat somebody with love. And then it's still, it still sort of goes south anyway. It still fractures, it still stresses, it still breaks. And I find that to be really, really sad, particularly with, with children involved. Not that every relationship that falls apart which includes at least one person who wants it to stay is, is something of a tragedy in my estimation. And so I, I guess I believe that we're not armed with the knowledge and skills necessary 
to execute healthy relationships by and large. Meaning while we grow up learning basic arithmetic and how to read and write and things like that, I do not think at any point on average, we're taught the actual skills required to make a relationship work. And I think that that's really sad. In my own life, I I thought I was decent and I thought that was enough. I thought the idea that I'm a decent person who always tries to do no harm and who genuinely loves his wife was enough to sustain a marriage because I'm not a quote unquote bad person who, who cheats and hits and, you know, commits crimes, does all of these things. I thought, I thought if you complained about a guy like that, you lacked gratitude, that you lacked perspective. And I, I, I no longer believe that the truth is people with the best of intentions who love each other very much can still hurt mm-hmm. the other person. They don't have to try to hurt somebody to hurt somebody. And that was a really valuable lesson. I learned much too late. I feel like. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that in regards to abuse. I'm not talking about that. When I say two to tango, those things are obviously excluded from all of this. I'm talking about just in general, a lot of marriages, I feel like sometimes we, uh, okay, let me just be honest. I feel like sometimes we can give up, but it's just a few little things that we could switch that could make a huge difference. If we were both willing to put the work in, I don't know. Is that a cop out? (laughs) No. No, I, well, I, I think the story makes so much sense it, mm-hmm. when you watch it happen, when you're from the outside looking in, it's so confusing. I think when you're in it, you're sort of too close to it to see it, I think. But when you watch it as like a third party, I, I feel like I can just say what normally happens. And I hope people will forgive me, particularly the guys, um, because I don't like to stereotype and generalize, but it's useful for efficiently telling the story. Um, the most common relationship is a man and a woman. And the most common breakdown of these relationships is his female partner starting to feel hurt, starting to lose feelings of safety and trust in the relationship because of things he doesn't calculate to be dangerous or things that he doesn't calculate to be betraying or harmful or anything dishonest. He, the, the idea that safety and trust could erode in a relationship based on this guy's behavior doesn't make any sense to him. And so he thinks she is responsible for like pulling away, pushing him away, criticizing him, never feeling like he's good enough, treating him unfairly. And then two people sort of just push each other away a little bit more until you don't get to have like a relationship full of trust and intimacy anymore. And everybody has what seems like a really rational, really sensible reason for engaging in the self-preservation that they engage in. Again, in this usually, right, this builds up slowly. This doesn't happen in the first three months of a relationship or even the first three years often. It's sort of like year five, year seven, year 10, you start to see these things sort of come out of the woodwork and, and, and everybody's sad and confused about it. Nobody, nobody is like, I orchestrated this plan in order for my relationship to suffer later. That's that they really do want it to work and they're so confused why the other person isn't sort of receiving them as they intend to offer themselves. I don't remember when I heard about this, but this man that observed relationships and he could get it within, I think, 90%. This was years ago, but he said the biggest factor was contempt. That was one of the things he noticed in interviewing people within a few minutes that if you had contempt towards your spouse, you were likely to divorce. So is this kind of the same thing that you're talking about with paper cut wounds? You're talking about Dr. John Gottman. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. And um, I mean, I don't think about it the way Dr. Gottman thinks about it. He brings decades of, of like clinical prescriptive marriage counseling and therapy to the table. And, and I think about it less like that because I don't know, I don't know how to think like Dr. Gottman thinks. I believe the paper cuts show up in all of the little things that we do every day. And, 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 you know, in my personal story, my sort of quote unquote, most famous example is, is leaving a dish by the sink. And then the conversation surrounding that dish by the sink. And as you may or may not know, I wrote an article once called she divorced me because I love dishes by the sink. It's the most popular thing that I've ever written. And it, to this day, six years later, still generates a lot of conversation and division among the people who read it because it it causes the same fight ironically the article causes the same fight that that is caused in the relationship and it's this notion of what is allowed to matter to somebody else and so in my relationship i leave this drinking glass by the sink i don't want you to imagine like dishes with like food chunks and stuff on it it's not what it was it was a drinking glass that had water in it for like vitamins and supplements and things like that. And I would leave it there just because I wanted to. And my wife didn't want it there. And then everybody likes to have a grand debate about who's allowed to win, about whose opinion matters the most, about whether the husband's, in my, in my case, my, my right or my feelings about leaving it there are equal to my wife's feelings about not leaving it there. And then so begins uh, the, the same fight that everybody has. It's just not always a dish. It can be anything, right? It can be, it's not always domestic household responsibility. It often is though. It often when people share space and they share children, that's frequently when a lot of relationship conflict sort of emerges. But the paper cuts, I, when I think about paper cuts, I sort of think about that. I sort of think about the idea that I left a, a glass by the sink I don't think sane people believe that leaving a glass by the sink is harming people or harming relationships. And I obviously mean that in like a semantics way. And, and so to make the claim that the dish by the sink harmed my relationship requires a really nuanced conversation. And I just believe that what that literally was in the context of my wife's experiences with me and my relationship is evidence that I will always choose me, what I want, what I think, what I feel over my wife and what she wants and what she thinks and what she feels. Like, I just think at its core, that's the conversation about the ditch by the sink. And it doesn't go very well. Um, it doesn't go very well because I don't agree with my wife that the dish is as harmful as she makes it out to be, A. And B, I'm completely defensive and invalidating of all of her thoughts and feelings about it. When, when it sounds to me as if she's suggesting that I'm doing something harmful or that I'm doing something to hurt her, that I'm doing something to disrespect her because the idea of validating somebody and the idea of agreeing with them was something that I conflated. I didn't have to agree with my wife about the dish in order to validate the very real experiences she had when she walked in the room to find it there. And I didn't understand that back then in the way that, I do now, but these are nuanced ideas that are difficult to convey in like 10, 15 minutes of conversation, particularly if it's like the guy who was like the person like me in the relationship. It's not always the guy, the person who was like me in the relationship. Um, 
I was insistent that the dish wasn't as big of a deal as my wife was making it out to be. And that fight about what's allowed to matter to somebody else, the severity to which someone's allowed to hurt because of something we do or say or don't do or say, to me is at like the epicenter of trust erosion in a relationship. And that's when I say paper cuts, like that's what I mean, because that happens every day. And I think reasonable people say we should be allowed to disagree about a dish by the sink and it shouldn't jeopardize our relationship. And I agree with that like sentiment completely. The problem is the execution of it day in and day out over the course of five years, 10 years, literally erodes trust between two humans, erodes intimacy, creates distance between two people. And then, you know, five to 10 years later, you don't literally don't have the same relationship that you had when you started. And it's because of things that you and I might calculate to be ridiculous, but that doesn't mean it's not the reason it is. And I think that, that it's really tragic that Mm -hmm. things as seemingly benign as a ditch by the sink or whatever the equivalent of is in any individual's marriage and household, that that's Mm -hmm. the stuff that, that slowly ends relationships too slow to notice, you know, too slow to notice it's scary and that we have to do something about it. Yeah. The, the cup was a representation of something deeper for her at that point, right? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I I think for her, it was another example of how I'm always going to do whatever I want. Okay. Because you know what I mean? Like I, that's not how I thought of myself truly. And by the way, in real life, the dish thing wasn't as big of a deal as like the sort of analogy, symbolic metaphor of the article it was, but, but I promise it's 100% accurate that I had this really nasty habit of sort of not letting my wife own her feelings, if you will. Um, if, if something she was saying or feeling didn't align with what I thought was fair or reasonable or appropriate or whatever, I would behave accordingly. And she just always heard me choose me sure. through the entirety of our relationship. Yeah. I didn't know how to think about it like that back then. Yeah. 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 It's weird. The thing that will eventually like push us over the edge and this can be in relationships with friends too. It's just, yeah. I, I don't think that's actually as weird as maybe some people are thinking that that could be uh, a representation of that, that buildup, but you talk about how we're often too busy or distracted to notice. And again, that's kind of why, I mean, that's a huge reason I have this podcast is to notice, notice these things that we talk about on the show and apply maybe something you've heard on here to help make your life better. So I want you to, again, draw from your own experience and just talk to listeners about what is something they can easily put into practice that can help them in this area, if this is an area that they're struggling with. Well, I, in my coaching work, I focus on two things and I focus on the one that I'm not going to talk about, even though it's the most important one, which is this sort of macro notion of consideration. Consideration in a nutshell is when I put that dish there, that glass by the sink, I calculate for what my wife will experience when she walks in the kitchen to find it. And then I I make a decision accordingly. I don't forget that she's going to walk in later. She's going to find this glass. And I, as her husband, want to care about what she'll feel. And if it's going to be negative, if it's going to communicate you're married to somebody who doesn't care what you think you can feel and he'll always choose himself over you, I want to, you know, like do something differently. But that's 
requires, honestly, I think a lot of conversation, a lot of practice for people who don't think about this idea, this really, really nuanced idea of what it truly means to consider someone else when we make decisions. The thing that is like the low hanging fruit as a habit in my work, and it's usually the men that I'm working with in male female relationships, is is validation. My when my wife came to me and said, "Matt, this dish by the sink is a problem for me." What I wish I would have been able to do was navigate that conversation. I, I, the way I think about it is just successfully. When when we leave the conversation, can we both feel fine, good? mutually respectful, as if we love each other? Can she trust that when we leave that conversation, everything's okay, that I completely understand where she's coming from and that she feels cared for and respected afterward? That might seem like ultra simplistic and stupid, but I think in a common relationship, that's not true. I think in a common relationship, one or both partners literally doesn't trust and literally doesn't experience the the feeling of when I feel bad about something going on in a relationship and I go tell my partner about it, it gets resolved. I'm, I'm heard, I'm understood. And we leave that conversation with everybody mutually understanding one another and caring about one another and feeling cared for by the other. That's not, that's not what happens because we have these things that like I might calculate to be harmless disagreement, but which my wife is hearing for the umpteenth time is Matt. <clears throat> insisting that what he thinks and feels is somehow superior to what, to what I think and feel. What Matt wants to do trumps my negative emotions, my negative experiences about it, right? And I would chalk it up to, I don't know, irrationality, hypersensitivity. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't okay. Because we always left the conversation with her feeling as if I implied that she was wrong, dumb, crazy, weak, unfair, being hypersensitive, being overdramatic. And that's not a successful conversation with the person that you promised to love all the days of your life. And I really hate that. But in my own head, I was simply disagreeing with my wife about whether that dish mattered. And I, I wish, I know it seems so like maybe absurd to people, but, uh, but I don't think it is. I think this is how two decent people who love each other very slowly erode trust to the point where a decade later, they don't get to be in a relationship with one another anymore. And so mechanically, what does this validation thing look like? Well, what would happen is my wife would come and say, Matt, I feel bad about something. Something happened. I feel bad about it. This is me now telling you, I'm trying to recruit you to understand what just happened. And you're my husband. You're a person that I tell things to. And so version one of invalidating my wife was disagreeing that what she said happened actually happened. The pr- and so the math result of that exchange with my wife is your feelings are wrong because they're based on something that didn't happen the way that you said it did. Version two of that, my wife would come at me and she'd say, Matt, bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time I would totally agree intellectually with what she said happened. But this time I do not understand why she feels the way she feels about it. It feels like a gross overreaction. I'd say, sure, that's what happened, but why are you making such a big deal out of it? So the math result of that conversation is your feelings don't matter because your emotional calibration is wrong. And then version three is like, I'm defending myself. I'm justifying my actions. I'm explaining why I did something. These are the three ways people respond to their relationship partners over and over and over again. When their relationship partner comes and says, hey, I hurt because of this thing that happened. And I'm trying to recruit you to understand. I need your help. 
moving forward in this bad thing not happening to me anymore. But that's in a relationship in which invalidation is sort of like the default theme of the conversation from one partner to the other. Nothing ever is made whole. Nothing is ever repaired. I imply that you're wrong, that you're weak, or that regardless of that, I'm justified in doing whatever I'm going to do anyway. And so not only can you not trust me to stop doing whatever the thing is that I might be doing that's like resulting in, I don't know, pain or stress or anxiety or whatever for you, but you can't even trust me to engage in a conversation about it. And I, I just think that's the recipe for people who genuinely love one another and want to be together forever, slowly poisoning their relationship until, again, in year seven to 15, they discover that, that there's no trust left. Yeah. And I think that's what that looks like. This, this seemingly vanilla, benign, <laughs> unremarkable series of events that occurs from the start of a relationship through when somebody decides I've had enough. I can't, I can't come to you and say that I hurt and then trust that you'll do anything to support me afterward and trying to make this painful thing stop. That's, I, I think, I really think more than half mm-hmm. of relationship partners are sort of incapable of navigating that conversation successfully. Mm-hmm. And then that's how we poison the well. Is that usually when you see, or that you've seen in your practice, seven to 15 years, is that when people start to go through these evaluations? Sorry. Yeah. It's an arbitrary number that I say, like, you know, the whole seven year itch thing. Yeah. No, I wouldn't say that. I've got, I've got people who've been married a very long time. Mm -hmm. I'm always blown away by like the 30 plus year couples that that'll come to me and have these conversations. And it's the most sort of flattering, humbling thing that can happen. Mm -hmm. But they're, you know, sometimes they're just of a different generation where they're so tolerant. Yeah. Where they're, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. She, it's usually she, let's be honest, is like a saint and just, just takes it, you know, and just has in order to raise their four or five kids or whatever. And it's remarkable. And, you know, she's on the verge of leaving at the age of, you know, 60 or whatever. And he's like, goodness, like, so we finally get serious and then engages in a conversation with me about it. So no, I, I don't know. I feel like, I definitely think in second marriages, that window shrinks big time. Yeah. So yeah. that, right. That's sort of like a first relationship that I'm thinking about that mm-hmm. seven to 15 year mark. The truth is if you were to get remarried again, I think you notice it in year two, three, four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're on the receiving end of the same behavior you were in the previous relationship and you're like, I'm not going to tolerate this. Mm-hmm. And again, statistically it's women leaving men. Yeah. Yeah. Women file, I think seven out of 10 divorces in the United States. And I think elsewhere. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I think that a lot of it comes back to humility and setting your pride aside. And it's really hard to do that when you feel you're right. Uh, and, and, still needing to seek that validation in the other. And I've noticed that in my own life, it's like, well, I actually believe that I'm right right now, but I, it doesn't discredit how you're feeling right now with what I've said. It doesn't discredit any of that. Allowing yourself to be humble because this is the person you said yes to. So I think it's it's weird because something can build up to where you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to be wrong. And so I don't know. Or am I am I making sense? Is that true? I mean, for me, I 
I, I go through this thing in my coaching work and it's something that I mentioned in the book, but mm-hmm. it's this thing I call like the monster into the bed theory. It's just this example of going to, you hear your child crying in the middle of the night and you go in to see what's wrong and you discover that they're afraid of a monster hiding under their bed. And you know, there isn't a monster under their bed. And as this child's father, the way that I want to mitigate the problem, the way that I want to fix this is if I efficiently get into his or her head, that there's no monster under the bed, they won't feel afraid anymore. They won't be crying anymore. And so I think through that scenario and I'm like, you know, in the case of my son, he's 13 now, but he used to be four. I would say, but there isn't a monster under the bed. Everything's fine. Like there's no reason to be crying right now. There's no reason to feel afraid right now. And in this example, I wouldn't really do this, but, but, but you've heard, everybody's heard this before. Things like toughen up, be my big boy. Boys don't cry. Everything's fine. You know, go back to sleep. You're fine. You're okay. And then I leave. And I just like to point out to everybody, especially my coaching clients that I'm talking to when I, when I go through this like thought exercise that uh, one, I'm correct that there isn't a monster under the bed. Two, I love my son more than I've ever loved anything that's ever existed in this world. And three, I would never engage in behavior designed to hurt my son ever. But what's the math result of this exchange? Uh, My son is still afraid, still crying, alone in the dark. And he just learned that if dad doesn't think the thing that's scaring him, that's upsetting him matters, dad implies that I'm stupid or that I'm weak. And then he abandons me literally or metaphorically to cry alone in the dark. It doesn't make dad wrong. It doesn't make dad love me less. It just means I don't trust my father anymore. When something hurts, when something's bad, when something's upsetting me, and I call for dad to come help me with it, I always feel worse afterward if this is hypothetically how dad always shows up. And so I really like to like point out this scenario because I, I keep coming back to it with my clients in conversation. It's like, stop getting distracted by whether or not there's a monster under the bed. Like, it's not relevant. Like, there's no merit and being right about that in the context of the quality of your relationship with this human being that you love, who's in pain, who reached out to you for help. And there's just a different way to show up <clears throat> And that. You know, you lose trust no matter how much you love them and no matter how correct you are mm-hmm. when you respond to people in that way. And I just, a lot of men particularly can like relate to this example. Anyway, the other way to do that is to go into the bedroom to find out that your child's afraid of the monster under the bed, to sit on the bed, to hug your son, to say, kiddo, I don't think there's a monster under the bed, but I know what it's like to be afraid. And I'm so sorry that you're afraid right now. It's a really terrible thing, you know, to feel. And then you turn a light on and you check, make sure the coast is clear. There's no monster under the bed, but most importantly, you're not going to ditch your son. You're going to stay with him until he knows it's safe to go back to sleep because that's the lesson of the moment is I want you to know your bedroom's safe, your house is safe. And most importantly, that you can always call your mom and dad. Whenever something's wrong in your life, now or always, and we might not be able to fix what's wrong, we might not be able to fight your battles for you, but you never have to feel alone in like whatever horrible thing it is that you're dealing with. You never have to feel like you're the only one suffering. And I just believe metaphorically, that's what we do to our relationship partners. When we tell them they're wrong about something, and then we walk away because their feelings are not our responsibility is over and over and over again, we communicate, you can't count on us when something's wrong. You have to sell me on the idea that what you think and feel is something that I agree with, is something that I think has merit and is totally correct. 
if you want me to show up in a manner that feels like being loved and supported, like for you. And uh, I don't know why we do that, <laughs> but it erodes trust in relationships. Yeah. And then when really awful, awful things happen, like um, getting diagnosed with a serious illness or losing a loved one, mm-hmm. just some major trauma in our lives. And we have this multi-year pattern of not being able to trust our relationship partner when something's wrong. They cease to be an oasis of support, of peace, of anything that feels good when we're suffering. Being with that person doesn't help us. And, and anyway, that's what happened in my marriage. And that's what happens to so many people. And I'm saying the same things that I think the average like marriage counselor and therapist would, would say. I'm just saying it in a dumber way <laughs> because it's oh. the way it's, it's my language. No, no. I think that I'm very visual and that was actually extremely helpful. So I'm sure it helped other people, but we are actually running out of time here. So this is just, I mean, again, we could say so much about this conversation. We do not have enough time to really hash it all out, but this was wonderful. So where can listeners grab a copy of your book or connect with you online if they want to know more and get a richer version of all of this? Uh, I really appreciate it. My home on the internet is matthewfray.com and um, the books and every book retailer that I'm aware of, and at least in the United States. And then we're also in the United Kingdom, Germany, and Australia, which is super fun. And MatthewFray.com is where people can, you know, find me and connect with me on social if they're interested in continuing this conversation. Awesome. Well, I know you have to go, but I'm going to do this in under a minute. So what is a resource that you'd like to share with listeners that you highly recommend that's been beneficial to you? A book that I recommend, but it's almost become cliche at this point, is Atomic Habits because it's, yeah. it's been so wildly popular. But for whatever it's worth, I was recommending it before it became like the mega bestseller that it is. But the reason why is because I don't want people to think about having some character defect that is causing problems in their relationships. I don't mm-hmm. think you're bad. I don't think you do bad things. I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think you have habits that inadvertently harm your relationship in the same ways that we just got done talking about in this conversation. And I think you can practice new habits that will serve rather than accidentally harm your relationship. And for me, Atomic Habits is the most useful manual for thinking about subtle behavior change in your own life. Absolutely. Okay. Lastly, what is something you can't stop talking about? Um, In the framework of this conversation, I've been very excited at everything is about trust. In relationships. And I, I think it took me till right now to say that trust, trust, trust is like critical. We need that more than I think we need love in order for relationships to thrive and to go the distance. Strongly believe that. And what creates trust in relationships is repair. And in my marriage, I used to run away from conflict. And, and, and it took me nine years of doing this work to truly think about the fact that what grows trust, I know what, I know how it erodes. But it's like, how does it grow? How does it grow like really efficiently? Through repair. And I think that if you can adjust your mindset to embrace, not like awful, strenuous conflict, but a little bit of discomfort, knowing that when you navigate that successfully with your relationship partner, that trust like blooms, that it grows, like you're creating the most important thing you can create in your relationship. And so I encourage people to not shy away, to not run away, particularly the guys from the uncomfortable conversations, but to run toward it, to embrace it. Because once we learn how to navigate uncomfortable conversation with our spouse successfully, we become masters at growing trust between the two of us. And that's the difference between 
relationships that slowly die on the vine and relationships that thrive. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I know we ran a little bit over time, so thank you so much for sharing with us. And I think this is going to really help people. So I appreciate you and thanks for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. What did you think of the episode? I invite you to keep the conversation going at minimalistmomspodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Instagram account, Facebook page, and where you can find me all around the web. Thank you for joining up on this journey. I wish you a lovely week as you think more and do with less.